Okay, can you guys hear me all right? I think I'm on. You know, uh, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 5 this morning, we're going to continue our study there. But I just wanted to um, kind of explain, I I try to to often explain why we do things the way that we do them here. And um, just if you ever wonder, like, why do they, like, read a passage of Scripture that's not the text that we're going to be studying before... um, I get up or whoever gets up and, and teaches that week. And, and the reason is, is quite simple. I'm very selfish. That's right. Uh, I actually love the word of God being read over me before I teach. I like to hear the scriptures being read because it conditions my heart, prepares my heart. It puts me in the right frame of mind to hear the scriptures read without having to say anything or really think through anything. I just want to listen to the word of God being spoken over me before. So you're like... Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, and I, I was joking when I said it was selfish, but that's, that's the truth. Like, I, I honestly just want to hear the Word of God read over me before I teach that week. So, um, from that passage that I had Christian read this morning, um, the middle part, portion of that, I want to reread this for you. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. And we're going to use this as a springboard into 1 John chapter 5 this morning. Jesus says, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is the giver of good things. The text that he read, that Christian read over us, is so helpful for our understanding. Um, This is the picture that the Lord gave me this week. I went camping with my family uh, this week. And um, I discovered that we can't continue to blame Rob for the bad weather at family camp. It's my fault. (laughs) So the forecast was clear and sunny. And guess what it did? It poured. Clouds came up out of nowhere. And I looked up and I was like, this is all my fault. I've been blaming Rob for a year. Anyway. So I'm just warning you about family camp. There could be weather, even though it'll, it's supposed to be nice. Um, so we go camping, and I'm standing on the shore of Lake Ponderé, and, and I was standing out there looking for stones, because this is like one of my favorite things to do whenever I go to a lake, and some of you guys might be the same way. You look for the smooth, flat stones, and what are we going to do? You're going to get low, right? And you do that sidearm thing, and we're going to skip it across the lake, right? It's like therapy for me. Skipping stones with my kids at the lake is a fun thing to do and good, right? It's okay for me to pick up a stone on the shore of the lake and be like, try this one out. This is a real good one, right? My kid's going, Dad, skip this one. (laughs) Nothing happens. You know, it's always the best rocks that I waste and somehow I'll skip some boulder that I shouldn't even be throwing and blast my back out in the process. But you guys, skipping stones at the lake with your kids, good. Giving a stone to your kids for dinner, bad. I don't know if you guys remember, there was an old skit called Good Idea, Bad Idea. Does anyone remember this? Good Idea, Bad Idea? It was part of the Animaniacs. I'm not encouraging you to watch cartoons, but if you have to, watch Good Idea, Bad Idea. And the idea was this, playing catch with grandpa. And there's this little kid playing catch with his grandpa with a with a football. It says, bad idea, playing catch with grandpa. And he picks up his grandfather and throws him across the field. I thought it was funny. But you guys... Giving stones to your kids to skip at the lake is a good thing. But giving stones for your kids to eat at dinner time is, a, is bad parenting. That's bad parenting. What's appropriate and good in one context may not be appropriate and good in another context. And I'm going somewhere with this. Bear with me. 
I think of children oftentimes who are, when they're very young, you know, when they first start crawling and, and they're so difficult to protect from themselves because they get into everything. You know, BJ's in this phase right now where Dimitri's getting around all over the place and he's, learnt, he's nodding at me in the lobby right now. He's getting into everything, right? They get to that phase, they start opening cabinets, they, they start realizing that they can get into really fun gooey stuff under there. And there's also some dangerous things too, right? So all you moms go out there and you install those cabinet locks that adults can't pick the lock for, you know? You rip a fingernail, <laughs> ah! You know, you can't get into these things, right? It's because, but the, the, the reason we do it is we're protecting our children. They get into everything. They put everything where? Right in their mouth, right? Everything. And it's bad parenting to let your kid chug bleach. <laughs> My son Christian will tell you. But you guys, I'm just kidding. They keep, <laughs> they keep dangerous liquids locked away. We keep sharp objects up high because little children don't know any better, right? They don't know any better. Little Timmy's going to try and swallow anything he gets his hands on. And if you have a little Timmy, I apologize. As kids grow up, we train them what is appropriate and good in the context of the situation, don't we? We spend our parenting years teaching our kids what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. How a knife is wonderful to use when you're chopping vegetables, but you shouldn't chase your sister with it. Right? There's all types of things. Now that pertains to many aspects of our lives and, and, and we as the children of God are still in this learning process. We're still going through these learning processes with God spiritually and sometimes physically. You guys, here's where this picture becomes helpful. A stone is good for skipping but not eating. A good father knows the difference. A good father knows the difference. A snake is good for something... I guess. But the idea is it's dangerous for attempting to eat. Right? The, the fish is the safe and expected part of the meal. And a good father knows the difference. A good father knows the difference of the right context for something. And he defines what is good for that moment. And just as Jesus tells us to ask, seek, and knock, we ask God for good things, and they are things that he defines good for the appropriate season and time. You see, what's so vital for us to understand, church, as we go into this next section of 1 John, is that when we are going to God in prayer, we are asking him for his will to be done in our lives for what he calls good to be poured into us and lived out and that may not be what you want and you may not understand and you may want to throw a tantrum because dad just took something away that you thought was shiny and fun but it was going to kill you and we need to trust our father to know the difference and we need to trust our father to do what is good for us Adults, we understand this. We try to teach it to our children. We are still living as people who are under authority, are we not? Just because you grow up and you, you turn 18, you're like, I'm going to spread my wings and fly. And you're like, yeah, but there, there are rules. There are limitations. And if we don't accept those limitations, we hurt ourselves. We get into trouble, don't we? And any adult that's willing to be honest will tell you that this is the case. We ask God for good things, and good things are defined by our Heavenly Father who knows the difference. He doesn't give us stones to eat. He gives us bread. He doesn't give us snakes. He gives us fish. 
He doesn't let us get into every cabinet and start digging things out that will harm us. In fact, as a good father, don't say State Farm is there. As a good, (laughs) just sounded right, didn't it? As a good father, he disciplines us. And that's what Hebrews 12 is all about. We're not in Hebrews 12 this morning, but you should read it. It's all about accepting the discipline of God, recognizing that he disciplines us for our good, and God defines what good is. When you think of good, do you think of God, or do you think of something that you want? When we think of good, we need to let God fulfill that that defining quality, that characteristic of what good is. So, all of that to shape our hearts and our minds to read our text this morning. Hopefully this is worth it. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, we're going to talk about prayer this morning, and I'm really excited to share this with you guys. Beginning in verse 14, where we left off last week, John continues, and now we are in the, almost the postscript of the letter. The body of the letter has been completed, and this is John really wrapping up some things for the church. And remember, he's writing this to the churches in Ephesus. He says this, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. This is the word of the Lord. Looking at the first two verses, verses 14 and 15, let's talk about these two in context, and we're going to wrestle, if you will, with the next two verses. Verses 14 and 15, we're talking about confidence that we have before him. Remember, consistently, John has been trying to build into our hearts, into our mindset, that we need to know these things. So that you may know has been repeated often in this letter, and and the word confidence has been used in the last three chapters in succession, talking about what we can be confident in. And so let's talk about prayer here for just a second, and let's talk about what he's really driving at when he says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. The basis for prayer is that God hears. That's the basis for prayer is that God is listening. I'm not throwing my prayers up to just some random skyline. I am praying to God because God's ear is attentive to my prayer. He's listening. Have you stopped and really just let that sink in for a minute? God listens to your prayer. If you wanted to stop right now, which you are free to do, close your eyes and pray, God will hear you, church. He's listening. That's a powerful thing. John has used the word translated confidence three times in the last three chapters. I just mentioned that. In Christ, we are given confidence in place of condemnation in chapter 3, verse 21. We're given confidence in place of final judgment in chapter 4, verse 17. And here in chapter 5, verse 14, we're given confidence that in Christ, we have the attentive ear of the Father. If we understand this in a, in a parental way, if we understand that, that I love my kids, no one had to bribe me. I love my kids. And when my kids need to tell me something or they're in trouble or they're excited about something, they have my attention, sometimes forcefully so. They get my attention. And that's a good thing. 
It's a good thing. We should more often be image bearers of God in this way. Be image bearers of our Father in this way that we set things down and we give ear to our kids. That we give ear to people because we love them and we care about them. We set our phones down. We turn the TV off when they have something important to tell us. Give them your attention. If we have the ear of the God of the universe, why would we not give ear to each other? Turn everything off. It's more important. Shut things down. Give priority to people. This listening ear of God is the basis for prayer, but there's a principle that must be in place which directly correlates to this. The principle of prayer, in order for it to be answered, is that it's according to God's will. In order for this prayer to be answered and to be effective in our lives, it needs to be according to his will. Yes, God wants to hear when you struggle. Yes, God wants to hear about what you're going through and wants to hear you pour your heart out to him. But the condition and the posture of our heart must be in a place that we are ready for him to lead us. We're ready for him to lead us on. There are three key factors within us to pray confidently according to his will. Think back to 1 John chapter 3 with me. And we'll put this verse on the screen for you. It's verses 21 through 22. John wrote this, Dear friends, if you read it in in different translations, Beloved, I love the beloved. If our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Did you notice the connection? Prayer must flow from a submitted and obedient heart. When we come to God, we can be in a place of distress. We can be in a place of being undone. But if you want God to move, if you want to see God work in your life, you have to come to him submitted and obedient, willing to do what he tells you to do. This might affect your fun level. (laughs) Your levels of fun might seriously diminish. But if they do, that fun was flesh and not spirit. Amen. You guys, it is more important that we are obedient to God rather than us getting what we want because he is a good father. An obedient heart is delighting in God's ways and thereby seeking for his purpose and not for my own. When I come to God in prayer, the principle of prayer is that it is according to his will. Am I coming to God in prayer, wanting his will in my life more than I want released from the struggle? You know, there's an amazing prayer in Acts chapter 4 where the church prays right after the first real persecution happens. And what's amazing about that prayer is that they don't pray to be free from it. They pray for God to strengthen them so that they can speak more boldly. Church, that is the prayer of the church. And that's not just for the old saints. That's for the Acts 29. By the way, there is no Acts chapter 29. We are that chapter. We are the continuation of the church. And that ought to be our prayer as well. Lord, we are not asking to be free from the struggle. We are asking that you give us strength within the struggle so that we can boldly proclaim the gospel. We pray according to the will of God. The second key factor that we learn about... um, Praying confidently from the mouth of Jesus himself in John chapter 15, verse 7. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. 
It's a verse that people would love to be true in all contexts of their life. But notice this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want. He says, if my word is in you and you are submitted and you are obedient, you ask whatever you want, I'm going to do it. You're like, whatever I want in the spirit. Yes. Like contextualize, right? Bread, not stones. Prayer must flow from a heart that remains. The closer we are to Jesus, the more accurate and powerful powerful our prayers will be, no matter the circumstances or situations we're in, because his words will come from our mouths. If his word is stored up in my heart, that, that pressure, think about this. Think about a sponge. There are sponges in my house that I don't want to squeeze. The one at the kitchen sink is fine. But the one that's in the mop sink in the laundry room is dangerous. I have no idea what it's been soaking in. And it's always something nefarious. My kids are like, you didn't touch that sponge in the laundry room, did you? Why? They're like, you'll be fine. Call the doctor. Call the doctor now. You guys, if we want to know what we've been soaking in, we have to be squeezed. If you want to find out what we've been sitting in, what we've been absorbing, we go through pressure, we go through struggle, we go through trouble, we go through trials, and as that's being squeezed, does the word of God come out? Jesus says, my words in you, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and will be done for you. He says, ask according to my will, and when you get squeezed, my words will come out. So next time you drop that tool on your foot, (laughs) you know what you've been soaking in. (laughs) Conviction for me. (laughs) Whenever we go through struggles, what comes out? Is it godliness? Is it Christ honoring? You guys, we should desire this as a church. Transform this as a challenge just for our group that gathers here together. We desire for our prayers to be the outpouring of Christ's vocabulary unto the Father. I'll say that again. We desire for our prayers here to be the outpouring of Christ's vocabulary unto the Father. If you want a really specific example, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Lord, we have no problem coming to you and asking. This is something that I would like for you to do, but it's not about me. It's about you. And if this is your will, I'm going to drink this cup to the dregs. I'm going to take this cup and I'm going to drain every last drop because if this is your will, that's all that I want. That is my calling. It is my purpose. Not my will, but thy will be done. The third key factor to praying confidently is closely attached to this idea. John 14, 14, Jesus speaking again. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's not just the vocabulary of Jesus. Prayer must flow from a heart that desires his glory. 
It comes from a heart that desires his glory, that wants him to be lifted up, wants his name proclaimed, his name to be exalted. Prayer is not only obedient and submitted. Prayer is not only done in such a way that it flows from a heart that's close to him. There's a nearness, there's a relationship there, but it's also desiring his glory more than my own. It's desiring for him to be lifted up and exalted. William Barclay said the ultimate test of any request is whether we can say to Jesus, give me this for your sake and your name. If I can pray a prayer and say, Lord, would you give this to me for your sake and your name, then that is a godly prayer because I'm praying for it on behalf of the King of Kings. And I want to take the five talents that he gave me and I want to come back and say, Lord, I have 10 for you. Would you give this to me for your own namesake, not for my own, for your own glory, not for mine? Church, the question is this. Do we feel fulfilled in our prayer lives? Are you feeling a fulfilled and satisfied feeling in your heart and in your soul about your prayer life? And I want to be really honest with you. This convicted me. Reading these verses convicted me because I want to be closer I want to remain in him deeper and more dwelt inside of him. I want to go farther down in this fathomless well of God's grace. I want to know him more. I want to pray more accurately because I understand his heart better. And church, for that to happen, I need to come to him. And I need to ask for cleansing and I need to ask for forgiveness. And he is faithful and just as John told us in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. When we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He calls us to himself. He wants us near him. Maybe we've been asking amiss. As James would say in his letter in James 4 verse 3. And this could be a time of repentance for us, and we'll have a time for that at the end of uh, the message where we go into um, our time of communion this morning where we can really search our own hearts and see if we need to unload some things with the Lord, some things that we may have failed at. If we truly want the glory of God, then prayer will not only be shaped by His will, but we become avid listeners in the process too. I think that that's something that needs to be noted in prayers, that prayer is a two-way. It's not just um, a monologue, and I think a lot of us monologue and leave, and we don't give a chance for the Lord to even speak or say something back or confirm his word to us. I want to encourage you, church, to be people who listen in the process. We desire to hear more clearly so that we can pray accordingly. John continues in verse 16. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, he says this, there is sin that leads to death, and I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Challenging verses to be sure. One of two passages in 1 John chapter 5 that many scholars would say are, some of the most difficult in the New Testament. But it's so important to be read in context of what we've already read. 
Never pull it out of its context. Read it within the context of what John has just said, talking about confident prayer. We're told to pray for our fellow believers who we have seen committing sin that doesn't lead to death. Notice this. We are to pray for our fellow believers who are falling into sin. We're encouraged to pray for those who are both spiritually and physically ill in Scripture. And not only are we to pray for them, but I want to note this in Scripture as well, especially from Galatians chapter 6. It's not just a prayer of, Lord, help them, and now I can go on about my day. Paul talks about a much more interactive way of restoring people back. And he says this in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. Go after people who are caught in sin. Restore them back and notice this. Not with a shellacking they'll never forget. It doesn't say that in the text. It says with a gentle spirit. How many of us have either seen it done, had it done to us, or done it ourselves? Where we have chased people or seen people be chased or we ourselves have been chased away because we didn't Restore people with a gentle spirit. These are our brothers and sisters. Restore them back gently. Remember what Paul said in Romans 2. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. He draws us in. He's firm like a good father. He's firm with us. But you guys, there's a gentleness to the Lord. There's a gentleness to a parent who loves their child and brings them home again. There must be gentleness and restoration. Paul makes it clear that we are the channel that the grace of God ought to flow to, or flow through for those who are broken. I'll say that again. We are the channel that the grace of God ought to flow through to those who are broken. Our prayers on behalf of others will lead us to take action. I don't believe that you can pray with conviction and not be compelled to act because God was. God loved us so much that he took action. And when you love God and you love others, and we've talked over the past couple of weeks how those two things feed into each other and run circularly. We love, our love of God reveals our love for others. Our love for others reveals our love for God. And it goes around and it goes around again. And when we are loving one another, we can't help but reach out. leads us to take action. It's easy to talk about the basis and principle of prayer in the prior verses, but here we talk about limitations. Now John gets into limitations, and a lot of it is the situation that I just described. If I'm praying for somebody and I'm pursuing that person and they do not want it, they don't care, they reject it, what happens then? It may be that God wants to answer our prayer. But God's aim in our prayer can be frustrated by, for, by those for whom we pray. Have we not experienced that as well? The person that you're praying for, that you're trying to minister to, will not have it. They don't want it. If we pray for someone who's sick and they disobey the doctors and, and do something stupid, your prayer could be frustrated by their choice, by their actions. You don't control them. God may urge. 
God may plead, God may warn, God may offer, but the freedom of choice that he has given to us can still get in the way of his will. And this should create a little bit of fear, I think. This should create a little bit of fear for us to look at ourselves and say, Lord, I don't want my freedom of choice to ever get in the way of your will. And this is why when we pray healthily, we begin with a submitted and obedient heart. We're not coming to him trying to get our own agenda because it scares me sometimes that the worst thing that could ever happen to me might happen. And that would be for me to get what I want. You guys, sometimes the things that we want in this life would be detrimental and destructive to us to have. Only God decides. That is in God's hands. We've seen this even in the example of getting good gifts. I think Keller summed it up really well, and he said that, you know, idols are often good gifts that we've made ultimate. You know, we, we take something that's been a good gift, something that God gave to us, and we just raise it or exalt it up above him, and something that was a good gift from God becomes a very, very terrible master. May we be submitted and humbled in prayer to not see that happen in our lives. It's often human foolishness that frustrates our prayers and even cancels the grace of God. There's a sin that leads to death, John says. I am not saying that he should pray about that. It's a very serious thing to say. And this is one reason why I really enjoy teaching verse by verse through scripture, because sometimes I don't. <laughs> that makes sense. Sometimes it's not fun having to face verses like this. But let's look at this a little bit closer. This sin that leads to death in the Greek, it's the sin prosthanaton. That means the sin which is going towards death, the sin whose end is death, the sin which if pursued must result in death. And this death is not physical death. This death is eternal separation from God. He's talking about people's eternal destiny. There are two kinds of sinners. On the one hand, there are those who could say sin against, who could um, say sin against their will in the sense that they were compulsively drawn into sin. They did something dumb. They, they weren't thinking it through. They sin because they're swept away by passion or desire, which at the moment was too strong for them. Their sin is a, is a matter not so much of choice as of a compulsion to which they weren't able to resist. And on the other hand, there are those who sin deliberately. There are those who sin knowing that it's sin. We would call these transgressors. They know that it's wrong and they do it anyway. They do it on purpose, taking their own way, even though they're well aware that it's wrong. These two types of sinners begin one and the same. We all know that the first time we do something wrong, we do it with some degree of horror and fear. You remember the first time you looked at something you shouldn't have, said something you shouldn't have, did something you shouldn't have. Do you remember that conviction? Do you remember that feeling, that sickness of, I just did something that I've never done before and I feel awful? After we've done it, we feel grief and remorse and regret. But if we allow ourselves again and again to flirt with temptation and to fall, on each occasion, the sin becomes easier, doesn't it? You ever know that sin's like a cancer? It grows. It doesn't stay in one place. It consumes and it grows within us. It gets worse over time. Unchecked, undealt with, it leads to death. 
But if we allow ourselves to go down this road, if we think we can escape the consequences on each occasion, the self-disgust and the remorse and the regret become less and less. And in the end, we reach a state we can sin without any qualms or any thought of it at all. It is precisely that which is the sin that is leading to death. It is a sin that has numbed us to the point where we don't even care anymore and there's no conviction anymore. And we just do it because we want to. Even in that process of feeling desensitized to sin, might I warn you, and might I encourage you, church, that when you feel that check, that is the Lord. When you feel that conviction, when you feel that sense of this is wrong, that is the Lord, and you need to submit to that and obey that and fall to your knees and get help. Not only crying out to God to heal you and cleanse you, but involve others in the way that James says, confess your sin. Get prayed over. Get help. There's a program that will help you. Get it. There's, there's ways that you can be helped through this sin struggle, through these addictions that we struggle with. But do not think for a moment that you're going to defeat it on your own. Have you watched the Nature Channel? My wife can't watch nature shows with me. She can't take what's going to happen. You know the moment. The mama lion's got to feed her cubs. And things are desperate. Right? But here's the thing. The lions, do they ever go after the strongest animal in the herd that's in the group? No, which one do they go after? Either the small and weak or the old and feeble, and they separate them from the herd. You get them isolated, they're going down. It's over. It's only a matter of time. Isolation leads to death, and that's exactly what the enemy wants to do with us in our sin. He wants to isolate us away. He doesn't want us to confess. He doesn't want us to come clean. He wants us to be led to death by this sin. He wants prayers to be ineffective, and so he separates you from the flock. We've seen it happen countless times to people. And here's the thing. We know there's choice involved here. Church, I cannot implore you enough. Choose to pull in close to the family of God and find help. Get help. You are not alone. You are not struggling by yourself. You're not in some heinous sin that no one's ever heard of. Nothing new is happening under the sun. You need to confess that sin, be free of it, and get people around you. Amen? Find health and community. God is going to empower you to this, but you need to get people around you that walk with you through it because he has called us to be a body, not a separated, severed member of a, of a body. I've talked about this multiple times recently. It's gross when you see an arm cut off sitting in a field somewhere. You're like, that's disgusting. Yes, it is. And Rob's the only one that would laugh at it because he's a police officer and he's twisted. I'm just kidding. But like, but you understand, he's not here today. <laughs> he's going to listen to this. Rob, you're listening to the podcast on whatever day. I apologize, but you're laughing right now. I know it. <laughs> you guys, here, here's the point that I'm making. When you see a body put together and interconnected, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way that God designed it. With Christ as our head church, we are the body. Don't allow the enemy to cut any part off. And separate it to be destroyed, to decay and rot. That's where Galatians chapter 6 comes in. We need to go after those. But church, I just warn you against your own heart. Because I have to be warned against my own heart. I need to be submitted to God. I need to be obedient to Christ. Because I recognize 
that my heart is wicked and I need it to be refreshed and cleansed continually by him until the day of Christ Jesus. That's when I'll be completed. That's when we will be done. Practicing the sin that leads to death is to live in the state of those who have listened to sin and refused to listen to God so often that they love sin. And regard it as the most profitable thing in the world. It's the thing that I love the most. It is indeed an idol that consumes. Eugene Peterson explains, if we see a Christian believer sinning, clearly not talking about those who make a practice of sin in a way that is fatal, leading to eternal death, we ask for God's help and he gladly gives it. I love that. He gladly gives it, gives life to the sinner whose sin is not fatal. There is such a thing as fatal sin, and there is no urging to pray about that. Everything we do wrong is sin, but not all sin is fatal. Church, I believe there's strength in these words. And there's caution, there's warning here that makes me never want to stray from the Lord's side. That urges me to never, ever get so far away. One of the few things that I asked Chuck Smith personally about when I was a young guy, I remember asking about eternal security. And I went up to him after a lecture at Bible college and I said, you know, how do you look at these verses about eternal security? How do you wrestle with them? And Chuck at that time, um, being well-seasoned in years, looked at me, some young buck who wanted to start an argument. And he smiled at me. He goes, why would you ever get far enough away from the Lord to find out? And I was like, oh, that's a cop out. I was like, come on. He was like, seriously, think about it. So seriously, think about it. He was right. He was right. We can have theological discussions, but here's the real point of the issue. Why would you ever want to draw a line and see how close you could get to it when it comes to your relationship with God? Why would you ever want to find out how far away you could get from him to get into this place? Why would I ever test the waters to see if, if I could get far enough away that people would stop praying for me because there was no hope for me? And let me say this, we should never use this as a license to stop praying for people that are still out there struggling with sin. You pray for them. If people have rejected Christ, if people have walked away, but there's still hope, you pray for them. This is not for us to excuse. You don't know what their future may hold. But if someone has made that choice, they moved on, there is no need to pray for them. This is why we are passionate about reaching the lost, because we recognize eternity is on the line. Eternity with God is on the line. We're called to pray and act on behalf of our brothers and sisters because we have all been set free from sin by Jesus. As we think about John's closing words in this section, he says, all unrighteousness is sin. There is sin that doesn't lead to death. He ends it with this encouragement that like, listen, all unrighteousness is sin, but he says there is sin that doesn't lead to death. In other words, there are those who are struggling with sin, who are not making it a practice, who are battling against it, and we need to pray for them. Jesus says this in John 8, verses 34 through 36. Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Amen? 
He can set us free from sin and he can set the people that we love and care about in this world who do not know him free from sin. Are we going to pray from them and we're going to reach out to them and are we going to be an example of God's goodness in their life? God has given us the work of healing and restoration together, church. He's given us tools. We're all called to be skilled in the labor of restoration empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you of what Jesus says here one more time because we talked about it recently in a study. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Remember when we talked about the household of God? We talked about our adoption. We talked about how he brought us into his own home, that when Christ redeemed us, God didn't just build a really cool neighborhood and put us six doors down and say, I'll see you when I see you. Right? He didn't just give us a a house in his neighborhood. God brought us into his own home. He adopted us. We live in this house together. We're in this together. And that's the heart of Jesus, to liberate slaves of sin and bring them into his house. That's the heart of God. I hope that these words encourage you this morning from Epictetus. um, He said this, have courage to look up to God and say, Deal with me as you will from now on. I am as one with you. I am yours. I flinch from nothing as long as you think that it is good. Lead me where you will. Put on me what clothing you will. Would you have me hold office or refuse it? Stay or flee? Be rich or poor? For all this I will defend you before men. Worship team, could you guys come on up? I love this idea from the old Stoic philosopher because there's such abandon and there's such a openness to whatever it is that God chooses to do. Recognizing that our hands are best cared for in his, that our lives are best cared for in his hands. Church, I just want to, I want to encourage you guys. Maybe you feel like you've wandered too far away. Maybe you've never really come to Christ. Maybe you've never really given your life to him. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe your parents told you to. Maybe you set in at a young age a routine of going to church because that's what we do on Sundays. Maybe this is your first week in a church, your first time listening to a church service. Maybe you know exactly what it's like to disdain your sin, but to have sinned so much that it, it really isn't stinging very much anymore. It's getting kind of dull. And maybe you came in here this morning and you felt kind of numb. Just numb to life, numb to all the situations that you're in. I want to encourage you to have the courage to look up to God and to submit. Submit to his created purpose for you. Submit to the reality that he is the creator and we are the created and that he is calling his creation back to himself in Christ. Yeah, this morning I just want to give an opportunity for any who have not received Jesus to receive him. To say, I want Jesus. 
And I realize that my sin has destroyed my life. And I need to give my life to him right now. And I don't know why this is burning in me so heavy right now. But I'm just going to ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm doing this not because it's something that shouldn't be proclaimed, but because I want you to know that you are loved and cared for and that the Lord wants you as you are. And I have children who I know are so afraid to stand in front of a large group of people to make a proclamation, but they really feel conviction in their heart. And I just want to be sensitive to that. And I, I want to walk whoever raises their hand in this moment in just a moment through this prayer. And, and if you are here in this room or if you're watching online, if you want to receive Jesus as your personal savior, I want you to just put your hand up and I'm going to pray for you. And everyone's eyes are closed and their heads are bowed. This isn't something to embarrass you, but I want to call you home to your creator. If you haven't received Jesus and you want him, just lift your hand up. I'm going to pray. Lord, for those who are, who are willing to give their lives to you in this moment, I just want to pray alongside them, Lord, in recognition that we have failed you. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've sinned. We've gone after our own way. And we recognize that the wages of sin is death. And the gift, God, that you offer is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And for those who have the desire this morning, I ask, Lord, that you would confirm in them as they confess that they are sinners and that they need you, that you would purchase them, that you would redeem them, Lord, that you would save them. And Lord, that they would very quickly tell someone here. And Lord, that they would be able to celebrate with the body. But Lord, as I pray over them, God, I pray that you would forgive them as they confess their sin to you. That you would redeem them. And Lord, that they would know that their eternity is now secure in you, Jesus. That you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for all those who prayed to receive you this morning. And I ask God that you would fill them with your joy, encourage them, Lord, that even though they have sinned and they have fallen short, Lord, that you have paid for that with your sacrifice and that they belong to you now and are part of your body and that they live in your household. We thank you, Lord, and we rejoice for those who prayed and received you as their Savior. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to take communion in just a moment. I'm going to have the, the team come forward and distribute the elements, and we'll sing a song, and then we'll take communion together. So hold on to those elements, and I'm going to walk us through that. But I just want to remind you that communion is a family meal. This is something that Jesus gave to his disciples and to his followers. 
and um, use this time as the elements are being passed out as we're singing. Use this time to confess sin, to examine your heart, to be careful and to be reverent as we approach the body and the blood of Jesus, recognizing that his sacrifice for us is what has saved us from our sin. So we'll sing together and then we'll take communion in just a moment. But let's have a time of just prayer and, and worship and, and confession.